welcome to the 13th episode of Digest Cast, a podcast dedicated to the belief that big things come in small packages. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly, and together we are known as the Pied Pipers of the Man Children, and we're proud members of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Now, Rob, we say it's the 13th episode, but it's really not, and 13 is an unlucky number. So, let, you know, just ignore that, folks, because really we did a whole bunch of .5 episodes, which I think I sort of regret now. I feel like it's uh, when Marvel did those negative one issues, and everyone's like, how do I file that in my comic box? What? <laughs> At least we didn't do a zero episode. That's better. <laughs> well, you know that's coming next uh, at some point. Now now you've cursed us, sir. So, okay. and, and while this is the 13th Digest cast, this will be the 16th podcast where we talk about the Dr. Fate story. <laughs> Yes, folks, we are going to talk about Justice Society America, and it is your fault, people, specifically you Patreon supporters at home. We put it out there last episode. We said, all right, you guys get to pick the next digest we cover, and we had a selection of different books you could pick from, and the Justice Society one, uh, which is specifically what, DC Special number three, won by a landslide. I mean, it just crushed the competition. A couple of runners up we had uh, Brave and the Bold Digest, we had Detective Comics Digest, they sort of they did respectable. Poor Jonah Hex. I mean he didn't stand a chance. They I mean they, they, the Batmobile versus a horse just didn't work. Uh, so very sad, very sad. Uh, in fact, speaking of those sponsors, we should take a second to thank our sponsors. As we mentioned, folks, this episode is sponsored in part by uh, your Patreon support. Because, you know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows really does require a lot of online hosting and other services. Now, for the past three years, uh, we've been sort of, sort of absorbing those costs, and uh, it, it's really grown considerably. So we launched the Patreon, and you guys really stepped up, and I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And if you're enjoying a show like Digest Cast, the best way to support the show is by visiting our Patreon. What's that, Rob? Patreon.com slash FWPodcast. Yep. And please consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And at certain sponsorship tiers, you'll get mentioned on some of your favorite Fire and Water shows. For example, uh, David Gutierrez and Gordon Tolton, thank you for your support. And remember, go out to Patreon.com slash FWPodcast. Now, our other sponsor for this episode is In Stock Trades. And folks, uh, In Stock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collectations, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, Rob, what'd you bring this time? I brought all-Star Comics Only Legends Live Forever, uh, which reprints All-Star Comics numbers 58 through 74, some of which we'll be talking about uh, today, uh, Adventure Comics 461 through 466, and the classic, classic DC Special number 29, which features the secret origin of the Justice Society it's by Jerry Conway, Paul Levitz, Joe Staten, Dick Giordano, and many others. It's 448 pages on the cover is uh, the Jim Aparo drawing of uh, Batman in the Coffin, because it's, this is one of the stories where the Earth 2 Batman actually bites it. Spoilers! Uh, the, the, the normal in stock trades, the normal price, is, like I said, is $49.99. In stock trades price is $28.99. You save 42% off. These are really great stories. They are amazingly fun. And again, DC Special number 29 would be worth it just by itself. But uh, the, all the other stories are, are just amazing. So All-Star Comics, Only Legends Live, Live Forever, hardcover. So here's a little inside baseball for you folks. The way this works, when Rob and I lay all this out, we each go out to in stock and pick our own thing and put it in this Google document we share. And it's always a nice surprise to see what the other person picked. At least it is for me. And when Rob picked this one, I'm like, what the what? I didn't even know this thing was on in stock trades. I'm like, that is awesome. I have the old JSA, our Justice Society collections that reprints those all-star comics. But this new collection looks freaking gorgeous. So, oh, so, so jealous you found that one. <laughs> now, my pick's pretty darn good, too. I got JSA, The Golden Age, trade paperback. It's the new edition. And this collects the, the uh, James Robinson's Golden Age, issues one through four, drawn by Paul Smith. It is freaking gorgeous. This came out uh, probably about the year 2000, if I remember right. And it's sort of a... Technically, I think at the time it was Elseworlds, but they've incorporated a lot of the pieces of it. And, and what is it's telling what happened during the 1950s with the JSA and what happened to their successors. And I don't want to say much because it spoils a really, really interesting story that sort of unfolds. And I mean, it's got some dark, dark crap in this thing, but it is really, really good and it's gorgeously illustrated. It's 200 pages, full color. Normally re retails for 19.99, but you can get it for 42% off. It's only $11.59. Have you ever read this thing? Yeah. Yes, I have. It's, it is very good. Yeah, it's this is when and people joke about James Robinson. Like when he was writing Starman, he was amazing, and then he left comics to Hollywood and came back to comics. And then it's like, what happened to this guy? This is back when he was first getting going and is, was at the peak of his powers. It's so freaking good. Oh. So, folks, for uh, for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com.
Now, again, because your fault, people, uh, we're here talking about DC Super, uh, sorry, not Super, DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest, number three, Justice Society. Published by DC Comics, cover date is July slash August 1980. Oh my gosh, 1980. Um, on sale April 10th, 1980. Cover price was only 95 cents, and you got 96 pages. That's awesome. So when did you pick up this digest, Rob? Do you remember? Uh, I got it as a back issue back when I was completing my digest collection because I don't—I never saw this one on the stands at the time. Because if I had, I would have bought it. And with, and I didn't buy it till more recently. Till uh, we started talking about this podcast, I got really excited and bought a bunch of digests. But what, what just amazes me to sit here and think about is like. And, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, but I guess I care about these stories, so maybe I feel differently. But, you know, you couldn't – unless you went back issue hunting, which wasn't really all that much of a thing in 1980, unless you were a hardcore collector in a big city, these stories were never reprinted. I mean this is the first time this Dr. Fate story ever got reprinted. It's been reprinted a ton of times now. <laughs> Same thing with these all-star comics. First time these ever got reprinted. There's a freaking Golden Age story in here, which no one was going to find unless uh, it had been reprinted. And I even wonder – and maybe this is a question for later, but I wonder if this Golden Age story hadn't been reprinted here. I wonder if that Infinity Ink story would have even happened. Um, well, I bet it would have because I'm, I'm sure Roy Thomas has all these stories committed to memory. Well, I'm sure he does, but don't you think this kind of raised the awareness on that story, though? Yes, I, I agree. It does seem uh, slightly uh, coincidental that uh, the one story that was reprinted in a, in a DC comic – during like the 70s or 80s just happens to get a sequel 10 years later. So right. yeah, you would think that maybe just by the sheer fact that it was reprinted, it loomed larger in Roy Thomas's mind than maybe some of the other stories. I think so. And that it was actually only about five years after this, I would think, really, because uh, Infinity Inc. was going by Yeah, that's 85. true. That, yeah. yeah, that's true. Okay. All right. Well, why don't we get started here? Uh, this thing's got four different comics in it. Uh, really, it's three stories, but it reprints uh, All-Star Comics number 58 and 59. It reprints All-Star Comics number 36. That's our Golden Age story, and it reprints uh, first issue special number nine. So this sort of fits in with your first issue special series, doesn't it, Rob? Yes, it does. Awesome. Yes, it does. It's, I, are we going to talk about the cover before we get oh, to the yeah, story? Oh, yeah, should. Why don't you describe it for the people at home? Okay. I mean, I, I think it says something about uh, the Justice Society, how I think DC was maybe a little unsure how marketable they were, because <laughs> this cover had Superman and Batman on it. That's true. <laughs> and not the Golden Age versions, the, the sort of, right, you know, the oh, yeah. regular versions. Uh, and they're sort of like vouching for the Justice Society. You've got Superman saying, before there was a Justice League, there was a Justice Society. And here's a Golden Age classic to show how great it was it's like wow all right superman like <laughs> nobody asked uh and and so it's drawn by ross andrew and dick giorgiano and it features them holding up little sort of poster boards of the covers superman has his foot on the upc symbol which is always a nice touch I didn't notice that. Uh, nice. because you know like what is he actually standing on uh and then at the very bottom you've got dr fate popping in like it's laughing kind of coming in from the bottom of the cover to, <laughs> you know he's like Suck it to me. You know, right. you're like, what's going on? And he's Dr. Fate here to tell you that my only full-length adventure is an extra bonus inside. And he's got his finger up. It's just like a very funny pose where he's just like, hey, everybody, don't forget about Dr. Fate. So uh, it's a, it's, it's a all mostly white cover, very bright colors. I really like it. And, of course, Ross Andrew and Dick Giorgiano, it's a great combo. But it is just sort of funny that for a book titled Justice Society, Superman and Batman have two major figures on it. Well, and they picked an all-star comic from the Golden Age that has Superman and Batman in it as well. So, I mean, yeah, they really were trying to lean on, which is kind of strange because, I mean, All-Star Comics had had its run. Uh, maybe maybe that's why they were shy because All-Star Comics had had their run a couple years before and it got canceled, so maybe they didn't feel like there was enough legs behind it. I'm not sure. But it is kind of weird. I'm sure that's what it was, but it's just, it just sort of funny that how, I mean, they, you know, when they did Jonah Hex Digests and Sugar and Spike Digest, they didn't have Superman like, hey, everybody, try some Jonah Hex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, they must have had some level of confidence because this is only issue number three of this Digest. So this is pretty early in the run for them to, to go the, to this deep in the bench. Now, my personal favorite thing is on the back. And I assume this is probably still Ross Andrew and, and Giordano. I'm not sure. But all the little so, heads. Yeah. You get you know Superman, Batman. You get Jay Garrick. You get Bat, um, you get Wonder Woman. You get Alan Scott and Wildcat and uh, Dick Grayson, the adult Robin, and Dr. Fate and Hawkman and Star Spangled Kid and Power Girl and Dr. Midnight. It's just it, totally boss. You know, you and I have always said we were suckers whenever they would have the Justice League heads around the borders of the comics. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. is just beautiful. Russ Andrew did a bunch of great cover. He did most of the Digest, maybe not most, but a lot of the Digest covers. And uh, they all look really, really sharp. Yeah, it's strong. Well, let's get into this, folks. All right. So uh, I tried to write a succinct recap, but it's really hard because so much <laughs> crap happens. 
villains in this these first two stories. The first two stories are uh, all from All Star Comics number fifty eight and fifty nine, both published in nineteen seventy six, only four years before this. Uh, writer is Jerry Conway on both stories, and the art team is Rick Estrada and Wally Wood uh, inking it. So uh, here we go. Oh, well, the stories are called All-Star Super Squad and then Brainwave Blows Up, because, you know, that's a thing. All right, on Earth 2, the Justice Society of America receives a mysterious message predicting three major disasters across the globe that will result in wiping out all life on Earth. The JSA splits into teams of two and responds to each of the emergencies. Hawkman and Dr. Midnight investigate an earthquake in Seattle. There they find the Star-Spangled Kid, the young time-lost hero, who uh, is still adjusting to being transported from the 1950s to the 1970s. Now, Star Spangled Kid has been uh, upgraded. He's armed now with Starman's cosmic rod, and he's helping out the citizens of Seattle. So Hawkman and Dr. Midnight decide to hold back and let Star Spangled Kid handle things in an effort to build up his self-confidence. Hmm, okay. Then, uh, meanwhile, Green Lantern and Dr. Fate investigate a major gas leak taking place in Cape Town, South Africa. Also in town is Richard Grayson, uh, I should mention the adult Richard Grayson, uh, on assignment for the United Nations. When disaster strikes, Grayson dons the red, yellow, and green costume of Robin the ex-Boy Wonder. Uh, When Green Lantern and Dr. Fate are knocked unconscious, Robin makes a plan to stop the gas leak on his own. Finally, the Flash and Wildcat race to Peking, China, in response to an active volcano. At super speed, the Flash burrows a ditch around the perimeter of the volcano to contain the flowing lava. But it's not enough. Suddenly, a superpowered young woman in a white costume flies down out of the sky and caps off the top of of the volcano with her super strength. She introduces herself as Power Girl, Superman's Kryptonian cousin. And when the heroes team up, Power Girl proposes that they form a strike force composed of the JSA members and the younger heroes. A strike force called the Super Squad. Now, elsewhere, the true architect behind the environmental disasters reveals himself. Brainwave! Then we jump to the next issue. Now, having stopped the volcano, Flash, Wildcat, and Power Girl race to the JSA headquarters and then straight to the JSA skyrocket to blast off into space to confront Brainwave on his satellite. This thing happens at, like, breakneck speed. It's crazy to jump from scene to scene to scene and world hopping. It's it's wild. So throughout all this, though, there's this nonstop bickering between Power Girl, who's a very liberated woman of the 1970s, and Wildcat with his male chauvinistic comments. So back in Cape Town, uh, Robin decides, uh, I'm sorry, Robin deduces that the gas leak is all an illusion, which is enough for the revived Dr. Fate and Green Lantern to figure out that Brainwave must be behind this scheme. And over in Seattle, Star Spangled Kid, Dr. Midnight, and Hawkman stop the earthquake and then battle Brainwave's goons there. Meanwhile in space, we discover what Brainwave's true plan is. He's using a mixture of real and fake natural disasters. And the point of this is to drain the willpower from the JSA. And the willpower is then going to be used to rejuvenate Predegaton, or in here he's just called Degaton. In return, Degaton agrees to build a new body for Brainwave, which will match this illusion body he's currently running around in. It's a very complicated scheme that doesn't make a lot of sense. And about this time, all of our heroes arrive at the satellite for the big throwdown. Power Girl heroically saves the day by pushing the satellite towards the sun, and the heat apparently defeats both Brave Wave and Degaton. She then heroically pushes the satellite right back. Um, So that works. And the JSA members agree to give this new super squad a try in the end, teaming up the seasoned JSA members with the new younger heroes like Power Girl, Stark, Spangled Kid, and Robin. Now, I was a little sarcastic in there because there are some plot points here that just leave me scratching my head. But overall, I freaking love this stuff. So what what did you think, buddy? Oh, it's it's enormously fun. It's Jerry Conway, who, of course, was uh, very experienced at writing team books, as we know. Uh, no, this is this is enormous fun. I like it's all the characterization is fun. I like the idea of sort of bringing in the younger team within the larger team. It's almost like a super friends kind of thing. A little, like, like <laughs> oh a yeah, it is. Team. You're right. Uh, there's that. It's. I mean, I love the way Rick Estrada and Wally Wood draw Brainwave with those little googly eyes that he's got. Like he that's is. just hysterical to me. That is crazy uh, looking. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It. I. It, it is. It is beyond breakneck. I mean, it is this. It makes his Justice League stories look calm and reserved, <laughs> you know, generally. Uh, but but no, I think this was enormous fun. 
I, I love the artwork. Rick, I always Rick Estrada was somebody I've mentioned before. I didn't like when I was a kid, and then I've grown to really admire a lot more. Um, you don't see as much Rick Estrada here. It's really Wally Wood does very heavy inks, and there'll be some stuff we can get into that Wally Wood <laughs> specifically uh, <laughs> added uh, to these stories. Um, but otherwise, uh, I, I no, I thought it was I, it was a lot of fun. I love these characters. I love the Justice Society. I kind of don't need the focus on the younger heroes as much, but I understand why they did it mm-hmm. uh, but overall i just thought these these were a lot of fun for me um issue 58 is uh is, is interesting it's kind of a special issue for me because it's one of the earliest jsa ones i picked up my, my first justice league comic i ever bought or was given i should say was issue 171 which was the jsa team up and i was fascinated by the jsa from then on so the first time i really started diving in deeper and starting to find jsa comics was was this issue 58 i found it in 50 cent bin and uh for me it was like you know it was the first chance i ever saw the jsa on their own they were guest stars in somebody else's book you know for a change it was about them and so that was exciting, and, and um, I've, I've done quite a bit of research on this because I'm fascinated by these. I, I, back issue comics uh, had a great issue, issue 106, not too long ago, that takes a really deep dive into this Bronze Age revival of the JSA. So I highly recommend you seek out back issue number 106 if you really want to read a lot of in-depth articles uh, about how all this came to be and everything. And it's sort of interesting because uh, you know issue 58 was the continued the numbering of the original All Star Comics because you know it had stopped at 57 and then it became All Star Western or whatever in 1951. <laughs> so there are two books spun off from one title. Exactly right. So so issue 58, which was this one, kind of comes out of the blue because everyone's like, well, we're, you know, if they if they didn't know the other 51 came out, you know, 20 years before him, and and Jerry Conway was asked uh, in this interview why. Did he choose the name Super Scott? Why isn't why wasn't the comic just you know about the Justice Society? And he said that he thought that having a team called the Justice Society might be confusing to readers of the Justice League already, and he thought the new name might have some sort of appeal and and and, sh- and really grab people. Well, clearly it didn't because about I don't know five or six issues later they kind of dropped the Super Squad label <laughs> and just called it the Justice Society after that. In fact, I love this thing so much. In the early 90s, when you know the DC message boards were really just getting going, uh, my online handle in the DC message boards was Super Squad for a long time. <laughs> and, I, and every once in a while, I'd ask somebody, you know, ask people in a in a board, and like no one knew what the Super Squad was, but me apparently. I, I couldn't believe there was no fans out there that remembered it at the time. But uh, I was the only one. So anyway, um, was your avatar that picture of Power Girl with her boobs looming into the camera? <laughs> I don't think you can even have avatars back then. So I mean, that's how old school. <laughs> talking here <laughs> and, and i really fell in love with the series now there are I, I you know i nitpicked at it and i'll talk more about that in a minute so there are things about this from a storytelling perspective i don't love and as you go deeper into the run there are lots of things that i'm like eh, but i love the characters so much and there's there's so much other stuff to love in here that you know i just kind of look past the flaws and, and run with it um so we, we should talk about the, the big thing that we haven't mentioned is this was the first appearance of power girl right you know, and she's introduced as Superman's cousin, and she's been operating in secret for a while. And she's, you know, and they're basically saying the, the idea is, you know, Supergirl came to Earth, uh, Earth One, and was in hiding for a while, and then she became Supergirl fairly quickly. What they're saying here is Supergirl comes to Earth and just stays in hiding for a lot longer until she becomes an adult, a full-grown wo- woman, a fully developed woman, if you will. And uh, and they don't even tell her origin for two more years. And, and I was listening to you and Doctor Ange talking about the Supergirl uh, was. Uh, Treasury, right? Hold on, I'm blanking. You and Dr. Ange start... No, 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 in Justice League. Justice League Comics. Yeah, the guest appearances in JLA, yeah. Great episode with you and Ange, by the way. I absolutely love that. And uh, it got me thinking, you guys identified something about how Supergirl was never part of the Justice League. And that was disappointing to you guys. And I realized, right out of the gate, Power Girl gets added to the JSA. So that's sort of interesting that Supergirl never made it to the pros, but Power Girl did. Well, because they didn't want Superman – they didn't want the Earth 2 Superman around all that much because they thought it might be confusing, mm. I think, for readers. So they had to have a, a – you know, a, a ver, another a, – literally a distaff version. So there you go. You got Power Girl. Interesting. OK. And um, let's see what else. So all right, you, want, you, were, you were hinting at stuff about Wallywood. Why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Okay, so the the reason uh, that Power Girl is so famous for her pneumatic look is because she was created first drawn by Wally Wood, and Wally Wood loved to draw very very buxom women. He did a lot of uh, he, when he did his like self published books like Wits End and stuff. There, there was full of nudity, and so this was this was sort of his little sly gag. Now, of course, 
these weren't penciled by Wally Wood. These were penciled by Rick Estrada. Mm-hmm. But so, but the, the legend goes that within each every issue that went on, Wally Wood kept drawing Power Girl's chest bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> until finally, one of the editors was like, Wally, stop it. You're like, okay, <laughs> all right. So, so, but the fact that Rick Estrada is the penciler, that means Wally Wood must have been erasing Rick Estrada's mm-hmm. pencils and then adding his own thing, which is like I sort of admire the commitment to that bit. Sort of. <laughs> like he's just going to keep going. And, you know, I mean, right from the very gate, from the, right out of the gate, I mean, we see it. There, there's the, the first panel she flies in, and then there's this close-up where she's like, uh, you can call me Power Girl. and uh, you know, I won't confuse with my cousin. You know his name. Superman. And she's looming into the camera, and you're, you're meant to look right at her chest. I mean, there's no other way around it. And it's just sort of funny that right from the very beginning, that was part of her character. And they, that stayed through her character uh, for a year, you know, well, till this day. very day. Yeah. That That is part of her her persona is that she is built like that. And it's, you know, like the way most superheroines are, but Power Girl is very, very specifically. Um, so it's just funny that right from the beginning, here she, here she is. And I have to think that in the second story, uh, where she is grabbing onto the rocket mm-hmm. and redirecting it, uh, there's this middle panel where she is straddling the rocket and she is looking, she's got oh her face. Lord. Yeah. She's got her face up and she's got her eyes shut. And the way that they, uh, Rick Estrada and Wally would pull in closer, the, the rocket has a very phallic shape to it. And I'm just like, the, these guys are just sort of having a laugh, uh, at the comics code authorities expense, I believe. Oh my gosh. I did not notice that. Thank you. Now I can't unsee that. There you go. <laughs> and, that, and that legend about Wally Wood. I mean, I, and I can't remember if I did this with you or with Michael Bailey, but Jerry Conway told that story on air to me during one of some interview right, with him. Right. So, you know, I'm not going to argue with him. That's for sure. Yeah. So uh, other stuff that's interesting about her is they do say Power Girl's less powerful than Supergirl. So they make that distinction right there. And um, the costume thing. So I, nowadays they say the hole in the top, uh, you know, the boob window, if you will, was because nowadays they say, well, because she didn't feel comfortable to wear the S shield. So she had nothing there. But there's no real explanation for it here other than just to show off what's there, I guess. I, I don't really know. Yeah. And did you notice she's pretty much omniscient in this thing? Like the whole first issue, she's like going, yeah, we got to go stop Brainwave and Star Spangled Kids over in that other city doing this other thing. And I'm like, how does she know all this? <laughs> she just knows everything. It's just like she read the comic right before she talks to Wildcat. It makes no sense <laughs> at all. Um, uh, and, of course, there's the – go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I'm saying you could sort of see Jerry Conway setting up a dynamic between Power Girl and Wildcat that was not – entirely dissimilar from the what he was doing with Green Arrow in Justice League, mm, mm-hmm. where it was like, uh, or, or the Flash, because they, they, he started setting up that Flash was kind of slightly fuddy-duddy, and Green Arrow was sort of, or Hawkman was that way too. And so I think he was sort of setting up that dynamic here. The Power Girl was good, the, the hip you know, the hip young woman, the modern woman, and Wildcat was kind of the old curmudgeon. And even in the last panel of the second story, he's like, ah, nuts, kids just don't show no respect. I mean, it's, you know. Well, he calls her chicken broad earlier in the in the second issue yeah. as well, which you know, and, and this this relationship, this bickersons kind of thing, continues on for a long time. And a lot of people say that those are the roots, this sort of behavior of why Power Girl so unpleasant in the Justice League Europe comic. They say that they they just took that and ramped it up to a hundred because um, hmm. she's an angry person in the Justice League Europe comic. So they think because you know as um, Rick Estrada leaves, you know Keith Giffen took over on the artwork for those issues. And Keith Giffen plotted the Justice League Europe issues, so you know they're they're, they're sort of your DNA. Uh, let's see, oh, I, have, I have a lot of notes on these comics. So I'm sorry. <laughs> so Star Spangled Kid. So this is sort of interesting. You know, um, the JLA issue 102, where he time travels and ends up in the present day. And here they're sort of they're, they're dealing with the consequences, the continuity of a Justice League comic in this comic, which is kind of neat. And they really ramp him up at this point, though, because they give him Starman's cosmic rod. And what they don't even know they're doing, this issue right here is what puts us basically on the path to creating Stargirl. Hmm. Because Star Bangle Kid was just a kid at this before this. He didn't have any powers, right? He just he punched people if I remember right. So once he gets I think the, so, yeah. Yeah, once he gets the cosmic rod, suddenly he's got powers and he becomes a force and he keeps going, you know, and, and then he his powers develop, he becomes Skyman, which then end, ends up with Star Spangled Kid, which ends up to Stargirl, and we've got a TV show now for Stargirl. So it all really as far as I'm concerned, really starts right here, which is sort of interesting. Very timely as well, because Stargirl's only on like episode three as we record this. It's sort of funny that all the uh, all the seven soldiers of victory who got plucked out of time uh, in those issues of JLA, they're all kind of like 
every time you'd catch up with one of them, they mm-hmm. would always be kind of bemoaning, like, oh, I'm a man out of time. Mm-hmm. And yet over at Marvel, Steve Rogers took about three panels, and he's like, yeah, I'm good. All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, he just rolled with it. Well, I think uh, every third writer that, that would come on Captain America would decide to, to play that uh, violin a couple times, though. But see what else. Oh, so, okay, there's a couple of plot things in here that just are like, what the what? So a huge uh, earthquake strikes, right? And Star Spangled Kid's helping people out. And Green Lantern... No, is it, who's a Hawkman and Dr. Midnight just decide to hang back and let Star Spangled Kid hang, take care of it to boost his confidence? Seriously? There are people dying. And they're just like, <laughs> well, you know, he needs an ego boost. Let him do it. That's fine. <laughs> no freaking sense. No freaking sense. To Robin, it's, so is this – and maybe Chris Franklin should answer this question. But is this the premiere of the like classic Earth 2 Robin costume? That we know? No, he he. That debuted in uh, an issue of Justice League. Did it? Okay, because I remember he had like the gray one with the weird R. Oh god, ones. that hideous thing. Yeah, that was horrible. So I, I thought it premiered here. So it premieres before this. Okay, all right. But I, I do think he could have used a different sort of uh, whatever you call it uh, nickname than the X Boy Wonder. No, that's a terrible. It's a terrible name. Well, they call him the X Boy Wonder in this issue, and the second issue they call him the X Teen Wonder. So it's like really that didn't get much better. I, I you know. Hmm. Just uh, Robin. Just call him Robin. He doesn't need the exactly need the subtitles. Call him Robin. Uh, and then when they split into teams, this just cracked me up. This is funny as I'm reading it. So they split into teams, like they typically do. So Dr. Fate and Green Lantern, they go off in one direction, right? And then Hawkman and Dr. Midnight go off in the other direction? And I'm like, you put <laughs> Dr. Fate and Green Lantern together, but Hawkman and Dr. Midnight? Yeah, okay. That that seems like equal teams, I guess so. <laughs> it's a little top-heavy. Poor Seattle. Oh, those poor people. <laughs> And you mentioned how much you love Brainwave. So, yeah, I mean, just for those who don't know, Brainwave looks like he'd never looked like this before this. And he, he's, he, he was this short, shriveled sort of Dr. Savannah looking guy, which may be why they did this, too, to get away from the Dr. Savannah look since they had the Shazam license at this point. But um, they, uh, you know, he, he, he's this giant dude in the red costume. Which eventually, basically what it is, it's like a googly eyed version of Brainwave Jr., right? Isn't that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, right. They, 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 yeah, he just, well, he looks. He ends up being a projected vision of Brainwave, so because he was he was insecure about why he looked like that tiny little scrawny guy. But yeah, I think the reasons you're right is that he does look a lot like Savannah. Yeah, and so uh, I do like how Roy Thomas picked that up later and used that for Brainwave Junior. That was pretty cool. And then, uh, so you know, Brainwave's different. And then Degaton was too, because Degaton, like I was reading about this, you know, they changed his hair from red to black for this appearance. He's got weird genius abilities in this thing that he never had before, and he never does again. They give him like tights to wear. I mean, it's like it's the weirdest interpretation of Degaton that is like forgotten because it, it didn't fit with anything. So, I, I, Jerry, yeah, when I, I got to it, I was like, wait, that's Degaton? Yep. Like, what? <laughs> Apparently, Jerry said he just he didn't feel like he had to be too faithful to the Golden Age stories um, in that regard because he was just trying to tell new exciting stories so he could they could go in a the direction they wanted. And then uh, I did notice there were some, you know, I, I liked how he tried to slip some, in, you know, uh, Topical things in there. He talked about, you know, aerosol cans and fluorocarbons, you know, eating away at the ozone. They, they tackled apartheid, which is 1976. Tackling apartheid is pretty impressive. I mean, I don't remember hearing about it until the 80s. So um, I, was, I, I was impressed by this. Jerry Conway always brings it. Yep. So, all right, I've gone on and on and on. I'm sorry. These issues are just they, – they, they loom large in, in my life. So I promise I will have a lot less to say about the next story. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> the next story is a classic uh, JSA story. It's The Drowned Men by Gardner Fox, Erwin Hazen, Joe Kubert, Lee Elias, and even more. Wow, what a, what a murderous row of artists there. Uh, Calvin Stimes gets revenge on five of his ex-fraternity brothers by immersing them in the waters of Kohaha, which do not drown their victims but wash away their consciences. The result is brand new master criminals emerge. At the regular meeting of the Justice Society of America, the members read in the newspaper that Adam and Johnny Thunder won't be able to make the meeting due to injury and illness, respectively. <laughs> Honorary members Superman and Batman, also having read this news, arrive to fill in for Johnny and the Adam. Wow. Talk about heavy hitter replacements. Uh, Wonder Woman presents an anonymous letter naming the five drowned men as master criminals. Hawkman presents a newspaper clipping naming the same five men as having come back to life after being drowned in Koehaha and also naming a sixth frat brother, Calvin Stimes, who is now missing. The JSA equips themselves with Wonder Woman's mental radio and splits up to track down each of the five master criminals while Green Lantern hunts down Calvin Stimes. Batman, Flash, Hawkman, Dr. Midnight, and Superman 
each find the five criminals and then all meet up back at JSA HQ after Wonder Woman radios them with a startling message that Green Lantern has learned the real mastermind of all this is Calvin Stimes. While Green Lantern is telling the story, the five men escape. The JSA follows them back to Kalihaha, where Stimes is waiting to kill them all in an explosion. The Justice Society saves them, but Stimes is crushed by a falling rock. The Flash analyzes the stream's water and makes an antidote for the drowned men that restores their consciences. Then Superman breaks off a mountain and uses it to plug Koihaha, preventing it from flowing again. Okay, so Shag, you don't have a lot to say about this one? Well, all right. <laughs> First off, we, we should say, yeah, we, what we alluded to earlier on about there being a sequel. The whole Ruth, uh, stream of ruthlessness is what stream comes back to Infinity Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'll compartmentalize this in a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, it is a good story. It is. It's very interesting. It's compelling. The art is very nicely uh, done. I love the actually specifically some of the inking on this thing. The, the die just doesn't do it any favors in the reprinting of its size, though, because, I mean, Golden Age comics were pretty large, so when it gets shrunken down, a lot of the blacks get pretty muddy in here. But um, I struggle with Golden Age comics. I always have. There are a few I can enjoy. Again, as I said, this is one of the better ones. However... I fell asleep five times trying to read this comic, but this this single part of this digest, um, as good as it was, I just I don't know what it is about Golden Age comics. It knocks me out every. It took me two days to get the whole thing done. Um, but with that said, it's a lot of fun. I, I love the way they break off into te- you know into little individual units. I like the characters that are involved. I always love to seeing Doctor Midnight doing stuff because he's just the most awesome. Um, I, I did want to comment on what you joked about earlier on. Yeah, Superman shows up to replace Johnny Thunder. That seems like an even trade, right? Wow! <laughs> but uh, I thought it was very interesting. I, I, I like the stream of ruthlessness idea, the concept that it just makes the, you know, there's, in by the end, they sort of take the magic out of it by saying it's just some chemicals. But uh, yeah, I like that idea that, you know, once you take your conscience away, who are you really? What are you, what are you capable of when you don't, you know, have feelings for compassion anymore? So in, in general, I enjoyed it, but again, it's, it's a Golden Age comic, so I struggle. It's a fun idea that, uh, you know, when you remove sort of the conscience, I mean, that, of course, that immediately turns everybody evil, necessarily. You know what I mean? What happens if one of them is like, oh, well, all right, I don't, I, I, I don't really still want to hurt anybody, even though I don't have to suffer the consequences. I still don't want to hurt anybody. But no, they all turn into sort of like supervillains. Well, step back from uh, it, though. Immediately. But I mean, if, if the stream of ruthlessness were to wash across the Fire and Water podcast network, I mean, where do you, what do you think is going to happen in Nathaniel, Ryan, and Siskoid? I mean, come That's on. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think Max would probably, Still be nice. Max and Chris are probably fine. You and yeah. I are wild cards. The rest of us would just, yeah, we would all just die stabbing each other to death, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but yeah, I love the idea that the the Adam and the Johnny Thunder uh, decide to announce they're not going to make the meeting via the newspaper. Like, <laughs> you guys could, like, I don't know, the phone, maybe? You don't have, like, a, a like telegram what is, back then. Yeah, anything. I mean, for God's sakes, what is that about? Uh, I mean, Wonder Woman. In this very story, Wonder Woman has a mental radio that she gives them all, so they all basically have like JLA communicators. Yeah, how does that uh, work? In this story, yeah, telepathic radio from Wonder Woman. Telepathic radio. Well, it's a come on, it's Amazonian magic. Come on. <laughs> um, th- on a on a trivia note, this is the first story, the first Justice Society story that features Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman all together. Oh wow! They had not appeared together by this point because basically Superman and Batman were. Uh, you know, uh, honorary members essentially because they didn't appear in the stories. And I love that when they get involved, um, Superman says, I was hoping the Justice Society had a clue or two, thought we might work to mark this one out. He's talking to the Batman. And Batman says, If we do that, no lawbreaker would ever have a tougher team on his trail. Ooh, well, all right. Somebody thinks a lot. Nice. Like, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> so I think so part of the. We're, yes. just, a, just a question on that. You specifically said it's the first time they ever teamed up with the JSA. Was there a separate story where the three of them teamed up, or this is literally the first team up of the three characters? I That I don't know. I believe okay. it is the first appearance of them together, all three of them together. That's awesome. In a story. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a really a, sort of a big deal, really, when you think about the, the, you know, how hard uh, in the 90s into the 2000s DC's been pushing the triumvirate kind Trinity, of thing. But yeah. here, the Trinity or whatever you want to call it, but uh, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. But it, <laughs> here, uh, you know, this is the first time they're all, they're all together. Uh, I think part of the reason that this story is probably a little hard to read is because it is so sort of repetitive. Mm-hmm. And in Gardner Fox, that's how he wrote. He wrote these chapters where it was like, all right, everybody split up. And then – Kind of the same thing is going to happen to each hero-villain combo 
five times. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, then, then the, Dr. Minute's going to get his guy. Batman's going to get his guy. Superman's going to get his guy. And then they're all going to meet up at the end. And that that was fine, you know, but I, I could see why maybe after a while it would get a little repetitive. And part of it is the artwork. Um, the different chapters are drawn by different people. Some of the artwork looks better in the digest than others. Some of it is just literally hard to read. Because it's so dense. The inking is so dense. There's a lot of text. Um, I'm not exactly sure who drew some of these chapters versus some others. I think Batman is drawn by Sheldon Moldoff, I believe. The Flash one is, I think, it might be Erwin Hazen. I don't know. My old instructor. Joe Hawkman is certainly Joe Kubert. Okay, that was going to um, ask you which one was Kubert. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, Hawkman. Hawkman is Joe Kubert. And and so some of them are look better than others just at a small size. And that is part of the part of the issue. I mean, some of the panels are incredibly dark yeah. too. I mean, and that like the Green Lantern chapter, which is I believe drawn by Martin O'Dell, is just very dense and a little hard to read. So I think that I, is part of it as well. I think the Flash and the Doctor Midnight are probably as far as like, reading in the digest form are kind of my favorite. Okay. Visually. Uh, I uh, yeah. I mean so other I mean, I actually I have this digest out in front of me, and I did review it when I was writing the the when I was going through the story. I was actually looking at uh, scans of it because it's a little easier to read. But I do have the digest here, um, and I, I the one little detail I love at the end is that and when when Stimes gets crushed, mm-hmm. Batman just Batman just goes, "Well, that's the end of Stimes." Like. <laughs> There is no compunction about, oh, well, he's dead. Too bad. You know, move on to the next thing. I mean, I know it was during World War II. So, you know, Dude, didn't have time for a lot of guy time. poisoned a dog. That is true. He he's, deserved he's a real to dick. die. He's a real dick. There's yeah. no doubt about it. He's I, I, a real dick. I'm shocked you didn't bring it up before now. I mean, I, I got to that story point. I'm like, oh, Rob's going to be pissed. I found it very unpleasant. He's, yeah. a, he's a big jerk, this Stimes guy. It's one thing. This is silly, but one thing I always struggle with whenever I read these – not struggle with, but it's always – catches me by surprise i guess when i read these golden age stories is finding an issue with jay garrick where he's young because for me jay garrick's mm-hmm. always been old always right. you know i mean because everything i've ever read was always post-crisis you know kind of era or whatever and so every time i see jay young it's just like wow i, I can't even it's like seeing a picture of my grandpa as a kid it just doesn't process you know <laughs> so i don't know it makes me happy though so it's it's overall i enjoyed it i said i think the the stream of ruthlessness is a fun idea, and Roy Thomas really picked it up and ran with it because I love those issues of Infinity Inc. where he borrowed that and he turned the heroes against each other. That that was a really fun idea. So I like that this this planted the seed of something later on. Yeah, so it's it's in the first I don't remember what numbers, but it's in the first twelve issues of Infinity Inc. Gen- typically called the Generation Saga or something like that. Yeah. So check it out, folks, if you uh, if you want more on that. Features a great issue of Superman punching Power Girl in the face. Which is wow. One of the more- one of the more brutal moments <laughs> of any superhero God comic. Lord. Okay. On that happy note. <laughs> well, yeah, let's move on to the next story, which I'm sure Shag will have a lot to say about, even though he's already covered it 17 times uh, <laughs> on the, across the network. And that is, of course, the Immortal Destiny, which is the first full-length Dr. Fate solo story uh, from First Issue Special number 9. It's, of course, by the late, great Martin Pascal and Walt Simonson. <sighs> Yeah, here we go. All right, Chad, calm down. So, uh, sensing a great evil, Dr. Fate flies to the Boston Museum of Egyptology. There, the curator, Anderson, and a trustee named Dr. McGill open their new exhibit, The Tomb of Kallus. The mummy of Kallus springs to life and begins wreaking havoc. Dr. Fate dissolves through the wall and begins fighting him, but he notices that with each passing second, he begins to grow weaker, while Kallus appears to grow more powerful. Kallus explains that his power is derived from the amulet that Fate wears around his neck. Blindsiding Dr. Fate with some fallen debris, Kallus snatches the amulet and makes off into the night. A battle-weary Dr. Fate returns to his tower, and Inza nurses her husband's injuries. In his civilian guise as Kent Nelson, he has little memory of what transpires while he's adventuring as Dr. Fate. Inza grows frustrated with always having to compete against the essence of Fate for her husband's attention. Angrily, she storms off. Once he's refreshed, Ken Nelson begins researching the history of Kallus. He learns that the mummy was once a priest of Anubis who sought to take control of Egypt with their powers of darkness. It was Anubis who first gave Kallus the amulet, which contained such raw power. In 2030 BC, the Lord of Order, Nabu, fought with Kallus and stripped him of the amulet. As punishment for his actions, he had him mummified. Inza, meanwhile, feels guilty for walking out on her husband and decides to help him out. She goes to the museum in search of clues and finds a broken seal from Kallus' sarcophagus. The fragment contains a hieroglyph of Kallus' true name. Meanwhile, Kallus attacks the city of Boston, 
which is a wicked pissa, and transforming into a likeness of ancient <laughs> Egypt as a gift to Anubis. Dr. Fate arrives to battle him, but he is unsure how to conquer him. He tries to harness the power of the sun, but Kalos is too strong. Kalos summons Anubis to present a gift to him, but Anubis is unimpressed. He doesn't even remember his most devout worshiper. Inza arrives and gives Dr. Fate the fragmented seal in Egyptian culture, knowing an adversary's true name grants one power over him. Fate casts a spell and invokes the name Hedefetki Tefnatkehi. Maybe. The essence of Amun-Ra, Egyptian god of the sky, works through Fate, and Kalos is destroyed. Fate reclaims his amulet, and with Kalos defeated, Boston is safe, and Kent is joined by Inza, who has come to terms with her husband's double life. So, okay, obviously everyone knows this is one of like the great one-off stories of all time. Thank you. Uh, it is, I mean, it just is. It's just why this didn't continue on into a, an ongoing Dr. Fate series by Pasco and, and, and Simonson is a mystery for the ages because good Lord. I mean, this is, this is just, this holds up so well. Now, how many times you reread it? It's so much fun to read. And it's a great pick for this digest because any, a, not only is it a JSA related story, Walt Simons's work looks perfectly fine at the digest size. I mean, it's crisp, clear, easy to read. And even at this small size, you can still figure out what's going on at any given moment. It would also work well as a treasury, by the way, I'd like to point out. Anything really would, but yes, this would, this would work very well. It is, it is one of my single favorite comics of all time. Uh, it is, it is a crown jewel of first issue special, by the way. So I feel bad that all this first issue special coverage you've done, we're sort of tucking it in the back end of digest cast, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> as you mentioned, it was previously covered on an episode of Fire and Water Podcast Network. Uh, myself and Kyle Benning did an episode five years ago. I cannot believe it's been five years now. Uh, episode 129. And Kyle's – now, fair warning, if you go back and listen to it, I just went back and re-listened to it myself. Kyle is in his car driving across the great state of Iowa. And so his audio does get pretty warbly at different points. But uh, there we just we profess, our, profess our love for this issue and really go into a lot more detail than I promise I will here. But um, besides the fact that the, the Simonson artwork is absolutely astonishing. From, from a story perspective, though, this story gave us a couple of things that are interesting. Like, for example, this is the first time that Dr. Fate and, and Kent Nelson were ever identified as separate entities – that the helmet took him over. That had never been done before. He was just simply Dr. Fate, you know, whether he had the helmet on or not. And so, uh, I mean, Kent Nelson had a name, but they just, they never, because, you know, the helmet has in the spirit of Naboo in it. And so this is the first time they ever did that. And then, um, you know, the, the trouble between Inza and Kent, this is the first time they really introduced that story idea, too, which carries through quite a bit. You talked about a little bit about the flashbackups with Dr. Fate. And right. that, that plot with Inza carries through there, too. Yeah. And this was a, and this was Simonson's first full length story um, that he did after he finished Manhunter uh, for Detective Comics, and so he was still really really new uh, around DC. And I mean, every page is you know all the panel designs are different. Every page is beautiful. Like when when um, Kalos is speaking, I you know I don't know if you noticed, but like his word balloons are at the bottom of all of his word balloons are crumbling like stonework. Um, mm-hmm. It's just stunning. And all the onks, you know, like you know, Dr. Fate is you know, synonymous with the onk, right? That came from here. Now, certainly he had been tied to some stuff from Egypt before because of his origin, but never had they really had the whole uh, Egyptian iconography that he introduced in here and the importance of the onks. That was all introduced by Simonson, which carries on with Dr. Fate to this day. What he was trying to do, uh, I read an interesting interview where he basically said he was trying to create a visual language for Dr. Fate's magic. Sort of like he says, Dick Coe created this visual language for Dr. Strange. Like if you look at the weird trippy stuff going on in Dr. Strange from the magic, you can still tell what's happening. You can read the magic and understand it. And that's what he's trying to create for Fate. And I say he did a really good job because every time there's a spell here, you still understand what he's doing. I mean, visually, you can tell, like, oh, he's using, you know, the onks to do this, or he's creating a blast with this, or he's being attacked by, oh, gosh, what were those those crazy razor things? Um, oh, gosh, what do you call them? The, the, the talons, uh, a thousand talons were cutting into him uh, on page 92. I mean, it's just beautiful. I, all right, I'll take a breath. You can talk for a minute. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, it, it really is a, a great. It's just one of those things where, I don't know whose idea this was to sort of dust off Dr. Fate because he had not, again, had – he's never had a story this long before. You mentioned that the, the whole thing with the helmet of Naboo. Yeah, and if you ever read any of his more fun stories, 
uh, he's just like kind of like a regular superhero. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got you know he's really and he talks. He doesn't talk in that sort of stentorian tone or anything like that. He's just kind of like a regular superhero. But they gave him all, pretty much all the modern trappings we think of with Doctor Fate kind of come from this story, uh, for the most part. Uh, I love the lettering. On this story, I mean, again, all of Simon's and stuff always had this amazing lettering. I know he worked with John Workman. I'm not sure. I don't think it's John Workman doing the lettering here. But the sound effects where the guy's going, <laughs> and then there's wham and rip. And then the thing where the Collis uh, uh, rips off his uh, his uh, his, ro- his wrappings and there's like this rip. And he's like, look at me. And he's got this little scabby looking dude. Uh, yeah, it just even even down to the final thing where it says "fini." Mm-hmm. There's a little onk there as well. I mean, it's a, it's just it's a complete idea from stem to stern, and it's a, it's a damn shame that they did get a chance to do this again and keep going with this because this is just it, it, it's a story that you kind of never get old. It never gets old. It's just super fun to read. Dr. Fate, again, I know he's one of your favorites. He's always one of mine. Uh, and it's just, you know, you're like, boy, just give me more of this. But it fortunately didn't happen. You, you've helped feed my Dr. Fate fandom over the years. You bought me the, the Golden Age archives. And you bought me a custom uh, Mago of Dr. Fate as well. That's right. So, that's yeah. right. Back when I liked you and I gave you gifts. I say back before the lawyers got involved. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So it's, uh, anyway, it's, it's an absolute joy to read this thing, folks. If, you, if you've never read it and you can't find the digest, you can find First Issue Special collected in a trade paperback now. It's on the DC app. So you, you can read this story in many different ways. In fact, I recommend reading it on the DC app because uh, not only did I look at it in the digest, I did read in the DC app where you can go panel by panel and just soak in every bit of science. Simonson's gorgeous art, one panel at a time. Oh, it's so stinking good. So stinking good. So, And it's a great pick for the Digest, too. I mean, mm-hmm. It's a fun – I mean, they. I don't know what else they would have – I mean, I guess the, maybe they could have run another JSA story. I guess well, they chose not to do that. They could have done but, uh, those uh, Black Canary and Wildcat team-ups or, or – no, yeah, Starman, Starman, Wildcat. Yeah, yeah from Brave and the Bold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have done any of those things. But no, this, this was a great pick. So. Yeah. And then there's one extra little bonus feature because they had three extra pages laying around and they had to put something <laughs> in there. And this is a little feature called Welcome to Earth 2. And it just gives readers a little primer on the differences between Earth 1 and Earth 2. And it's drawn by Joe Staten and I think Bob Layton. Uh, I believe the same team who did DC Special number 29. And it's so funny some of the weird little choices they make here because it says, you know, imagine twin Earths and it's talking about the differences. And you see the little globes and you see you see the, you see the, the usual suspects. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern standing there. And then to, <laughs> to highlight the differences in the world, for Earth 2, Dr. Fate is there. And for Earth 1, Creeper. Right. <laughs> which is like weird. I mean, I know that made that made young Dr. Ange happy, but otherwise it's like a very strange pick uh, to do that. So then they get into the histories of World War II and versus World War One, And then they talk about how on some on Earth One or Earth Two, there are like, say, two Supermans, oh, there's two Green go. Lanterns. Here and then they, then they do another weird comparison where they say, oh, on Earth One, there's an Aquaman, but on Earth Two, there's a Dr. Fate. And it says orders are still unique. Men like Dr. Fate or Aquaman. Again, of course, this is before Ruth Thomas decided that there was an Earth 2 Aquaman. So at this point, they were still sort of basically trying to explain that the more fun Aquaman was still the same one that we see in the Justice League, which makes no bloody sense, Gosh, but it's fine. Wait, hold on a minute. Let's talk about that for a second. Oh, yeah, let's. Because you just said at this point in comic publishing history that there was no Earth 2 Aquaman, that it was all Earth 1 is what you just said based on right. this comic. Right. So there's some guy on our network who's been arguing that for nine years, and he takes a beating for it because of something that came after this. And that's – oh, my gosh. They, they I, don't do. under, I don't understand why Roy Thomas changing the history is – like what, that's the, that was the final word before they finally did the crisis. I, you know what? I, I will stand by this digest from now on as my evidence that there was no Earth 2 Aquaman. There we go. Okay. Done right. and done. Okay, fine. So, yeah, the Aquaman that, that punched Nazis is the one in the Justice League. Sure. Why not? He was around since the 40s. Yep. He was the first superhero on Earth 1. You got it. That makes – all right. Okay, whatever. 
<laughs> they get a cool ad for the Untold Legend of Batman. Yeah, yeah let's move on. Uh, the, yes, there are some nice ads. There's an ad for the Untold Legend of Batman, and then there's an ad for the, the beginning for the all-new Wonder Woman, the 97th all-beginning of the all-new Wonder Woman during the course of her series. Right, I read that, and I'm like, oh, is this where she gets the white pants? And I'm like, no, this is way after that. Oh, but- yeah, no, this is yeah, this is their their 77th soft reboot of Wonder Woman. Well, they're like, the TV show's off the air by this point, probably, so. Yeah, yeah. Altogether, a great collection of Earth 2-related stories. It's so much fun. I I have loved the Justice Society for a very, very long time. I, I've mentioned this before. You know, before I started the Firestorm Fan uh, blog, which led me down this path of destruction and hatred with you, uh, I had initially wanted to do a Justice Society blog. But there were so many of them out there at the time that I like, oh, well, I should I – I want something real niche. So I found something even more niche than Justice Society. But uh, it, it's books like this that made me want to you know, celebrate the JSA. And uh, someday we will figure out a way to do that, I think. Maybe Yes, someday. All right. <laughs> Cryptic laugh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that done and done, why don't we get into the comments from last episode, Rob, where we covered your beloved Transformers comic <laughs> magazine number two. Now, to be fair, you picked the book. You did it to yourself. You were all riding high and mighty because you did that movie commentary and thought you were a badass Transformers fan, and then you had to read that digest. Oh, you poor soul. I was on a real Transformers wave because they did the Treasury cast with Derek William oh, Crabb right. on yeah, Transformers that too. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we did a lot of Transformers. So, yeah, this is from the comments from the website from episode 12. First up is uh, David Ace Gutierrez, the owner and operator of the Katana Banana Stand. Ugh. He says, uh, I remember the day I felt old. I mean really old. I said, Shag, do you remember when we – Started this podcast and her eyes still worked, quoting me, uh, from the from the upcoming documentary, Head Full of Steam, the oral history of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. <laughs> yes, last episode we lamented on how uh, reading digests were difficult. I have to wear readers now, and uh, and Rob won't even read the digest. He's so lazy. So That's right. <laughs> then we heard from Devin Clancy who says, if I remember correctly, uh, speaking about the Transformers Digest, this was my first chance to read issues one through four, or at least the highly sought after issue number three, which was the Spider-Man one, remember folks? Transformers number five was the second comic I ever bought, but the back issues uh, weren't readily available for a price I could afford. Oh, I remember those days, Devin, when you, you would go through the back issue box and you'd look at that, I don't know, one comic in a run that was like 5 or $10. You'd be like, someday, someday I'll save enough quarters or I'll sell enough grit so I can buy that comic. <laughs> I totally relate, man. I do. Seriously, I'm, I'm making a joke, but I remember those days. Uh, I remember I remember the day I plunked down $5 for Secret Wars number one, and my mom thought I had robbed a bank or something. Like, I had spent so much money to buy that comic. So, uh, They were from Dan S. He goes, I'd rather listen to Shag and Rob than these Super Bowl commentators. <laughs> Obviously, you can tell when we posted the last episode. <laughs> oh, I remember when there were sporting events? That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Gothos Mansion says, uh, the other members of our little cadre of junior high geeks were all pumped when Marvel announced the Transformers comic book. Bowing to peer pressure, I tried the first issues, first few issues. The other guys loved them, but I just couldn't get into them. I lasted until the Spider-Man issue, and then I was out. I was already the outcast among the outcasts since they were all Marvel only, and I like DC too. On to the comment, on to the comment sections. First, Rob, don't say that Chris has a Jethro Bodine twang. Chris is an excellent podcaster. I didn't say that he wasn't, and I really enjoy listening to him. Plus, you don't take my Jethro twang away from me because when I have to call England for my job, lots of Brits tell me tell me they like my accent. I promise you, next to me, Chris sounds like that dude that hosted Masterpiece Theater in the seventies. <laughs> Speaking of Laura Gemser. Oh, my God. No, you did an episode on this. I shouldn't have to suffer through this. The greatest segue ever in history. (laughs) Speaking of Laura Gemser, Shag, I personally made it my mission to make sure she gets mentioned on every show on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He's got to get on Mirror Factory. Oh, and the lovely Laura did not do porn. A few producers added hardcore inserts mm, when her movies were exported to other countries, but Laura herself only did simulated soft where sorry soft core dan thought correct or maybe i zoned out thinking about laura why is it okay for you to watch an awful show to ogle whomever she was on powerless i forget ouch rob, <laughs> rob make shag watch a laura movie with you for film and water that's what i want to hear yeah, well in the meantime one- we've already done a laura gimster 
uh, double feature me and Max. So, I mean, I hope that that sort of scratched that itch for Gothos. Me and Rob watching a Laura Gimster movie together would be about as comfortable as the time my dad rented Showgirls for he and I to watch together. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Probably not going to happen. Maybe if we do like $1,000 a month on Patreon. To be fair, uh, once so- I looked at uh, her, her, her filmography, yes, I have seen some Laura Gimster films in my Skinamax days. Yes, thank you. There you much. go. All right. Ryan Daly, of course, from our very own network, says, I discussed Transformers number three with Delvin, John, and Pat on an episode of Transformers Chronicles over on the Longbox Crusade Network. So I had already done a little research on Spider-Man's appearance in the series. As I understand it, Jim Salakrep wanted to use a Marvel guest star to boost sales of Transformers so it could extend beyond the four-issue miniseries. He picked Spider-Man because, well, obviously, Spidey was the biggest thing in Marvel, but there was a problem with that. Hasbro had licensed the Transformers to Marvel to create the comics, but Marvel also had a licensing deal with Mattel to produce the Secret Wars toy line at the exact same time, and Spider-Man was part of that Mattel license. Salakrup, or possibly someone higher up, made the decision that Spider-Man would appear in his black costume in the Transformers to appease Hasbro, since Spidey was regularly appearing in black in Amazing Spider-Man and other books, but because he was still wearing the classic red and blue in Secret Wars. Simple. Mattel could have the classic red Spider-Man and Hasbro the black, no problems. Until Secret Wars number 8 came out three months later, and Spider-Man got his black costume in that. Oh well, nice try. <laughs> What a complicated licensing web that is. Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's bizarre. That, that's, that's like the weird, like how the MCU and the Fox X-Men movies both had Quicksilver in them. Right. Like, wait, what? Or, or like uh, when DC was producing their trading card series in the 90s and they couldn't use Batman, but they could use Nightwing. So they would say, Nightwing, who was formerly part of a dynamic duo. Like they couldn't even say he was Robin. <laughs> this is nuts. <laughs> Uh, then we heard from Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailingtude uh, podcasting network. He says, like Shag, I always wanted an Optimus Prime as a kid, but those damn things were really expensive. Yeah, yeah, they were, Mike. Painful. <laughs> and he says, I bought one of the IDW trades that collected the Marvel Transformers series, and instead of issue number three, the one with Spider-Man, you were given a text piece that explained what happened in the issue. It makes for a clunky read, but at least they gave us something. <laughs> he says, another fun fact I uncovered about the Transformers universe entries. Bob Budiansky would... Uh, who had a BS in civil engineering, includes pseudoscientific, cool-sounding jargon in the descriptions to make them pop more. That's really cool. I that like that. That is really cool. Huh. Yeah. Nice. It like, adds a little bit of a verisimilitude to it. Very cool. Uh, Chris Franklin, of course, also from our network. He says that y'all's coverage of MVAR robots will change into cars was pretty fun. Unlike y'all, my mama done bought me that tractor trailer guy, Opie Prime. <laughs> Because my mama loved me. He was my favorite. <laughs> These here, I love Chris's commitment to this bit. These here tiny books were harder to read than a joke carved in the outhouse wall with my daddy's pocket knife. Oh, my God. I, I don't reckon jokes about that dar Laura lady is any worse than Shaggy's dumb jokes about that ninja banana stand and he ain't like it ever to quit flipping his gums about. Chris Jethro Franklin. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, the weird thing is, you know, I've, I've I've hung out with Chris several times now. We we meet we meet for barbecue every so often. We've we've been to conventions together, and he actually sounds exactly like that. I mean, that Rob, that was uncanny. How much that <laughs> sounded like Chris. The amount of autocorrecting, I mean, uh, Chris must have had to go through to type all that. Is, <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> so wait a minute, his mom bought him Optimus Prime, but wouldn't take him to Star Wars. That's just messed up. I, well, was, wasn't it because he was afraid of Star Wars? Oh, I think you're right. Because okay. he was, yeah, he was a very fraidy cat, Chris, as a young, young Chris Franklin. Yeah, you know, yeah okay. that's fine. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Liz Ann Oswalt uh, from her YouTube channel says, cool podcast as always. Uh, I only read a few of the comics. Sorry to hear this one wasn't good. I like the cartoons. They had some great stories, at least for a child to watch. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the idea. <laughs> and then Liz points something. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, she said, weird in the comic is that, uh, is that Spidey isn't teamed with Bumblebee. You know, Bumblebee's Rob's favorite. Uh, and, and Liz says, in the cartoons, they were voiced by the same guy. In Transformers Season 1 and Spider-Man is Amazing Friends had the same voice actor. I, had, I went and double-checked, and I'm like, really? Yeah, sure enough. So that's a really cool connection I did not know. I uh, I should let you know, everybody, I have the Bumblebee movie in my Amazon Prime watch list. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Well, it came out the same day as Aquaman, so you couldn't get to it, I understand. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, I mean, I, you know, I, but, I mean, I do plan on watching it at some point. Uh, then we heard from Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network, and, of course, he took the mickey out of us, as usual. He goes, I listened to the preamble where you talked about Rob's new pad and the fun Buffy episode. Oh, about my daughter. Anyway, he goes, but once you got to the Transformers shit, I pieced out. 
Way too many punchy appliances on the diesel and coolant network these days. You do you, though. Just uh, and just out of I, I, earshot, I'm a sink. I'm going to slink out of the door with Ruth and Paquita again, which is a reference to uh, the Boston Comic Con where uh, he just totally bailed on us to go hang out with the girls. Uh, and then he says, "Hypocrite with <laughs> hypocrite with plans to record Transformers shit with Derek William Crab later this month." <laughs> Nice. Thank you so much, Frank. If doing Transformers stuff gets Frank from leaving comments, I think we should do Transformers Month at the Fire Order. <laughs> Scare him away. <laughs> it's like putting up a scarecrow, you know? You're just right. like, whoa, okay. And he just runs away. So, Edo Boznar uh, says, so you guys take credit for contributing to the creation of the recent and glorious Marvel Digest. True. But I noticed that after you covered them in a few episodes, the line was discontinued. Whoops. Maybe someone over Marvel wasn't pleased that the Digest only got the .5 treatment <laughs> instead of bona fide whole numbered episodes. I knew it would come back to bite us, Rob. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, oh yeah, about the digest covered in the episode. I think I'm reading a transformer. I think I'm reaching a transformer saturation point with your shows. However, it is interesting to learn that Marvel did publish some, and by all accounts, not very well produced digests in the 1980s. This is the first I've heard of them, so thanks for the net, that new tidbit of information. Also, I have to add that I am shocked and appalled to hear that you guys are not actually reading the digest, but rather digital versions of the stories or using magnifying glasses or whatnot. I'm so upset by this fraud on your part that I'll never listen to digest. Just cast again, at least until the next episode drops. Uh, Sorry, Edo. It's like I said, it's the one concession I make to my uh, impending death is uh, is the fact that I can't read Digest the way I used to. I can virtually do everything else the same, but I, reading Digest is a lot harder, and I don't see the need to turn myself blind like Donald Pleasance in The Great Escape just for Digest cast. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, Mark Baker Wright from Black Rocks Toy Box came back and said, I find the very concept of a Transformer saturation point to be an unfathomable concept. <laughs> Seriously, I listen to at least one Transformer-related podcast each week. There's plenty of for room for more. Uh, and, and by the way, I should mention in the comments here, we got several comments from Mark Baker Wright, uh, Kyle Benning, and John Schaefer-Hames, all of which these are sort of our patron saints of Transformers fandom uh, here, and Derek William Grab, of course, uh, around the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So thank you for all that, those feedback, guys. Mike Dinah says, a great episode again, fellows. I was surprised to hear that there was old Marvel Digest. I only ever saw DC, Archie, or Richie Rich Digest as a kid. To me, Marvel was relegated to little big books or those paperback novel-sized books that reprinted old issues in a horizontal format. I remember having a Thor one. I have been enjoying all these Transformers coverage lately. Like many mentioned above, I loved the toys and cartoons as a kid, but I never got into the literature, so it was neat to hear neat to hear views on the digest. My only complaint is that you had the character entries, but no hot or not judgments. I feel like the network needs to know whether you find Starscream hot or not. Personally, not. That voice pops into my head whenever I see him. Uh, yeah, Mike, I mean, I really think the hot or not designations, that's something only Cisco and the girls can issue. We're not really qualified for that, so you'll have to, have to ask them at some point. Um, speak for yourself. I built a whole, you know, persona based around calling people hot or not. So I'm just saying, or at least calling them hot, not necessarily the not part of it. Um, you know, it, it, something just sparked in me here. There were Richie Rich digests. Yes. Oh, a ton. Does that mean there was ever a sad sack digest? That's a good, I don't believe there was. I think it was Richie Rich because Richie Rich was, you know, a major. Right. Uh, yeah. He had, he, he headlined like 33 titles. Over the course of his career, I mean, take that, Batman. Uh, so no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think any of the other Harvey characters, even Casper, got their own digest okay. at least during the seventies. So Just believe me, if Oof. yeah, if there was a Satsack digest, we would have been covered. We would have covered it by now. My heart jumped. So yeah. yeah. So Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for Girl blog. Obviously, he had had a bit of the Transformers as well. He said more Transformers. Gosh. So clearly he loved that. Then we heard from John Schaefer-Hames, uh, the aforementioned John Schaefer-Hames, from the Married with Comics podcast, and also does his own podcast called Transformers, uh, it does with his wife, Transformers the Rod Pod. He says it takes a special kind of host, Shag, to not only refer to Ravage as Prowl three times, but one of those times while he's reading his universe entry. Oops, yes, I screwed mm-hmm. up. But then Mark Baker Wright swoops in from Black Rock Soybox to defend me. He goes, yeah, as a longtime Transformer myself, it was hard not to react to that. But since Shag did eventually realize his mistake, I hadn't commented on it until now. Thank you, Mark, for swooping in and saving me from that uh, horrible embarrassment. I appreciate it. You heard from Kyle Benning uh, from King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. Mentioned him a couple times on the show already. He says uh, a note about Soundwave's voice. 
he was voiced by Frank Welker, because we had talked about Soundwave quite a bit. And he goes, and the robotic tone was an after effect in post-production. His recording voice pre-effect was actually his dark side voice. So there's a few episodes where uh, they're missing. They added the effect in post-production, so you can hear Soundwave sound like dark side. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Megatron, get in the van. Something like that would be awesome. Um, and he says, I'd also like to point out uh, a note that the storytelling definitely improves once a Budiansky, you mentioned him earlier, comes on board and starts running the characters. He does a lot of great character development uh, with great plots and world building from his stories. And, the, and that groundwork is then taken and expanded upon in the incredible work of Simon Furman, who is writing the Transformers comics for Marvel UK. He says Furman was then tapped to come over to, and write the last 25 issues or so of the U.S. Marvel Transformers run. I'd recommend tracking down the the Marvel UK Transformers reprints as those stories are some of the best Transformers stories ever written. Mmm. High praise. Impressive. Mm. Then, um, well, I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to our patrons. I remember I mentioned that this episode, covering the Justice Society Digest, was a decision that was made via a poll over on Patreon. We also got several comments over there from you guys. Just want a quick name-check. Thank you, Robert Ward and Mike Dinas and Paul Keenzel and Brian Linton uh, for your comments. And then a couple we're going to read. Alan Wright said uh, it was the Brave and the Bold Digest that got him thinking about Robin Hood comics in the 1950s, which launched his career into Robin Hood academic scholarship. And uh, honestly, I, I mean, it's interesting that that digest played such a role because I don't know if you guys know who Alan Wright is, but I mean, he does the Bold Outlaw website. He is really well known as a Robin Hood uh, authority. And so it's uh, kind of cool that the digest played a small role in that. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, Comic Reflections says, I uh, was going to pick Jonah Hex, but went with JSA. Rob talking about Wally Wood. Classic. Uh, I didn't even get in, get into the story I heard from Tex Dell about the time him and Wally Wood were pissing for distance. Uh, but uh, and then uh, Mike Gillis from Radio versus the Martian says, "Why isn't every vote for Jonah Hex? Maybe the poll is broken." Mike, how many more examples do you need that democracy just doesn't work? <laughs> That's good. That's a good. Fair point, too. So, all right, folks. Next episode, we're going to cover another digest, and this time it's my pick. I am so excited. Uh, I, I, I really dug deep and tried to find something with it because you know, I love variety. That's my thing. I love the variety stuff. So, uh, this next digest, it features the creative talents of Jerry Conway, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, Paul Levitz, Alan freaking Moore. Keith Giffen, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, be his name, George Perez, Gil Kane, Paris Collins, Steve Bissett, and many more. Folks, we're going to cover Best of DC number 61, Year's Best Comic Stories of 1984. It's got the Anatomy Lesson. It's got Blue Devil number 5. It's got uh, some. Oh, it's got a nice wide variety of stuff. It's going to be an absolute blast. So we're going to cover that on the next Digest cast. I cannot wait. So, Rob, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can uh, find some of the scans from this issue and uh, where to find us on social media. Just go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com, and there's the gallery post, which you'll see images from uh, this comic book. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at FW Podcast. Awesome. Well, I guess that's going to do it, folks. So um, I guess come back next time. And remember, big things come in small packages. The brittle remains of the Justice Society of America. How fitting to find you holed up in a museum with the other antiques. Looks like we have to finish the job we started years ago. 